The Antifada is more than a podcast. It's a specter haunting the globe. It is the synthesis of the two most frightening things for the cheerleaders of this reactionary hellworld. One ravaged by the unbounded savagery of capital and its states. Antifa super soldiers and intifada. Bash the bash in a global uprising. Be prepared to enter the Antifada mindset. I'm Jamie Peck. And I am Sean KB. And I'm AP Andy. And we are broadcasting not live from Leftist Best Headquarters, about a half hour walk away from the gentrification ravaged Gowanus Canal in the coastal elite bubble of America, downtown Brooklyn, USA. That's right. And we are very proud to welcome friend and comrade Brandon Jordan from Global Uprisings to the show. What's up, Brandon? Hey, how's it going? So I would like to kick things off by asking our guest a question we ask every guest here at the Antifada. I think you regular listeners of the show know what it is by now. Perhaps Brando doesn't, judging from how he's uh, wiggling his eyebrows at me. Brando, how pure is your hate today? My hatred is the blackest purity. And I'll tell you why. Uh, Because... You know, because, I, I mean, I have a I have a kid, like 16 months old, and Ooh, when you have a kid... That's not good. No, when you have a kid, actually, you have, like, a pure, like, bonding and love with him, mm. but then you have this uh, sort of uh, protectionism, so you kind of hate anything that's going to kind uh. of actually hurt him, and, uh, you know, I mean, like, looking at the state of the world, there's a lot of stuff to hate. I mean, capitalism, global climate collapse, and then, you know, I have these daily kind of hatreds, you know... My wife says I have something uh, called stroller rage, <laughs> you know. So I, I actually go and that sounds push like a nice. park slope problem. Go yeah, on, I tell push. Us. I push the stroller around like we're in the city, you know. We're in the city, and I like push it around. And there's all these fucking assholes. They're on their cell phones. They're not paying any attention. Oh, yeah. They're always spilling their coffee on your baby. And I want to no. kill them. What? And I want to kill them, you know, Sti- like constantly. Spill, spill coffee on a baby. You know, but my pure black hate. Is out of love for my son. That's wonderful. Aww. They say that love and hate are, as emotions, are very, very close yeah. to one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you really experience the truest, darkest hate until you've had the purest, loveliest love? Exactly. Exactly. There's no. There's not a contradiction. It's a real. Uh, it's a, there's a dialectic there. Oh, I love. Yeah. That. I mean, I think most of my hate stems uh, originally from my love of humanity and being a human, right? Because. Why would I be mad at all the fucked up shit that's happening to humans if I didn't also love us? So, Brando, I would like to know, uh, how is the expat life treating you? I know uh, uh, Brando's been living abroad for quite some time, traveling around, making really cool documentaries about uprisings all over the world. I mean, you know, I live in Amsterdam, which is, you know, admittedly not the most exciting city, but, you know. Good reefer, though, bro. Well, the great the great thing is, I we actually you know the the, the thing is like actually the, the Dutch are very socially normative. They don't they don't get high that much, you know. Maybe in like high oh, yeah. school, it's That's like some it's, tourist shit, right? Yeah, it is. But you know, I mean, honestly, it's like we have a higher standard of living. We you know we don't have you know my my I have a child as I mentioned earlier. I don't think anybody's going to walk in and start shooting everybody in his kindergarten. Um, they don't do that as much over there. Not they? as much. Yeah. I mean, there there have been some mass shootings in Europe, but they're f- few and far between. The cops still shoot people every once in a while, but a little bit less. Um, there's still, I mean, I, I think xenophobia or racism are just as bad or worse in some areas. Uh, but it's nice. The one thing I think I like about Europe is it's very small, and it's, and it's actually relatively cheap to fly around, and that kind of made it possible to 
film in several countries. I wouldn't have been able if I, you know, I lived in Oakland and like going to Mexico was a really, you know, it was a pretty long fight. Mm. They couldn't even go to New York. So, I mean, I think that's the big advantage of living in Europe. Cool. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. Um, it's all I right. remember we, I, this just popped into my head. We hung out with you in Amsterdam. Yeah, we did, did we not? Sure did. A yeah. number we of years ago. We did. We did. The last time me and Sean were in Europe. Yes. And Next uh, time I actually, I think I was living in Leiden then. Yeah, Next time yeah. I live in Amsterdam, yeah. you can you can come maybe uh, visit our spot. We'll, we'll show you a great time. I believe that was actually. We like live near an organic microbrewery. There's some really good coffee shops. And give you a radical walking tour of our neighborhood. We'll have a fun time. For yeah. those not in the know, coffee shops do not only sell coffee. No, they sure no, probably no, no. don't want coffee. From My mother-in-law <laughs> came and she she wanted to go to a. Uh, I was looking for a cup of coffee and she pointed across the street and said, "Hey, you can get a coffee over there." I was like, "Nah, I'm not gonna go with you into that coffee shop. That's where you <laughs> it's buy different, mom. That's Hill where Street you get Blues, some fucking though. dank." <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I don't know. I can give you a whole guide. I think you also spend a lot of time in a place where it's impossible to find weed, Oakland, California. Right, right. Maybe uh, you can talk a little bit about the, the Bay Area left scene. I mean, I haven't been there in a little while. Um, but, you know, we did, we did a, a, our last film was uh, Antifa, which we did some interviews with some Bay Area anti-fascists. And one thing I think that was very interesting was post-Charlottesville, there was another one of these, you know, s- stupid kind of alt-right, alt-light uh, gatherings in Berkeley. It's really, you know, these dumb fucks. They had, uh, I think it was, it was like an anti-Marxism thing against cultural Marxism. Uh, and cultural Marxism. I, <laughs> and, Why you not know, just attack real yeah, which, Marxism? Which is a real big a, problem yeah. in the U.S. Every time I come here, I'm like, oh come, my come God, it's us, so bro. Marxist <laughs> now. Come at like, us, bro. If you like cultural Marxism, <laughs> you'll love actual Marxism. The, o- the only yeah. way that uh, Marxism as a thing is really big there is how like Dickensian, the fucking Bay Area, San Francisco <laughs> fucking uh, housing and uh, <laughs> uh, fucking work life is, you know, with uh, people getting kicked out of their houses all the time, rents being so high that people can barely fucking live. I mean, that's like, you know, Marxist analysis type shit. I don't know about that cultural stuff. But um, one thing that was interesting post-Charlottesville is that they were actually able, the the people that had been doing like anti-fascist organizing um, were actually able to work like uh, with other groups. So there's, there's other groups that were really active in kind of the Black Lives Matter protests, the, uh, the anti-police terror project. Oh, interesting. Um, they, they were actually really, really organizing a lot of kind of, you know, direct actions and stuff, mainly nonviolent direct action, but they were, they were pretty active and, um, they showed up and some other groups came out and, you know, it ended up being several thousand people and people supported, uh, more, uh, militant anti-fascist groups who actually were willing to confront and actually fight some of the kind of alt-right people. And I, and I, and I thought that was, that was actually really, really good. The groups kind of worked together. They, they supported people that were willing to actually, who wanted to actually fight. They didn't condemn them. Um, Oh, yeah, that seems like a very good litmus test yeah. for whether someone's like a good faith liberal or a bad faith liberal. Yeah, yeah, it's like, fair. do I, you I or that, do you I not support the tactics people are using against yeah. fascism right now? Yeah, I think that all sounds really inspiring. And to go back to what Andy said, um, I think it's a real fucking shame that uh, folks had to come together to protect a fucking funeral of yeah. someone murdered by cops uh, from a bunch of alt-right, alt-light psychopaths. It's not exactly how it went down. Uh, th- it was reported that way, but um, it was th- the, the, the meetup was in downtown, 
the the murder happened on the BART in uh, the MacArthur Station, which is like about an hour walk away. Um, and they were uh, probably unrelated. Like the guy who did it was probably a racist, but he wasn't like, we don't know that he's like a proud warrior and alt-right guy or anything. Uh, but nonetheless, people at the at the the funeral said, "We are sick of this situation of like this racial violence," and they decided to go, the, understanding that it was unconnected. They decided to go and like actively and yeah, wow, that's, uh, that's incredible. And it's being reported as though it was like misinformation or something, but that's I think the the situation in Oakland is like kind of at a a, a kind of a high level of politics as a result of. So much Oscar street Grant mobilizations yeah. over the last decade. Yeah. yeah. The Occupy over there was really huge. And I the just, riots after Trump got elected were insane. Like very well, like very wild and well organized. I'm just... Well, Nothing I'm, I like more than a well organized riot. We're going to talk a lot about the, term, the, uh, yeah. the, the rising right wing right now. But what I think is incredible is that Gavin McGinnis and his group of uh, Fred Perry wearing fucking dinguses have gone in the last two years from like some sort of serial loving fucking street squad to now being the alt light equivalent of like the Westboro Baptist Church. You know, I could see yeah. them start going to like fucking funerals and trolling people like yeah. Gavin hates, you know. It's I not. Almost said, uh, I almost said a bad word. Is but it you know still I mean. trolling if you're doing it for serious? Uh, serious reasons. It's it's tough to figure out whether the all the Proud Boys are actually serious or if they're not. They're 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 silly. They're silly men. They're it doesn't boys. matter. It doesn't they're matter. They're scum. Yeah. They still it, need their asses fucking beat in the I streets. I mean, they're scum, and and the thing is, you can you can go. They can go and say like we have like multi-racial membership or this or that. But the, the whole thing is like they're attracting Nazis. They're creating a space yeah. for them. They're also you know, a recruiting ground for Nazis because yeah. a lot of people yeah, move no, from exactly. the I mean, exactly. to the real thing. If yeah. I were, they, they may kick them out from time to time again. But if you got Nazis joining your group, you that's a bad yeah. thing. <laughs> Nazi adjacent. Like if I were not a Nazi, which I don't have to imagine because I'm yeah. not, yeah. and <laughs> suddenly found a bunch the bar of bar is really lowered. Were days, like joining my organization or becoming fans of my show. I might ask myself <laughs> what I was doing to attract all those Nazis. Is it me? <laughs> you know, maybe they just like uh, our theme song or perhaps uh, they're getting the wrong idea or perhaps I'm doing something very wrong. So, uh, Brando, you shot a lot of footage all over the world. We're going to talk about uh, stuff you've shot in Europe and Turkey and Egypt. Um, but you've also shot some stuff in Oakland, which actually ended up in the recent hit film. Sorry to bother you. Blockbuster hit film. Great movie. I recommend everybody see it. Uh, Boots Riley is a real comrade, and he's injecting anti-capitalist politics into the mainstream. And I'm the only asshole that hasn't seen it, so no spoilers. I liked it enough that I will go see it again, babe. All right, it just will happen. So Everybody should see it. see it, even if Movie Pass is dead. Definitely buy a <laughs> ticket. Um, but uh, how did you uh, end up in the movie? And you, you must be good friends with Boots, right? Now, I'm not really good friends with Boots. I, I shot four uh, seconds. He's so humble. There were, well, there were, I mean, you know, I shot four seconds, which is I'm really... I'm actually sure that's why it's getting such good reviews and oh, yeah. is up. those <laughs> four seconds four were seconds. crucial <laughs> that were on the TV of the riot. Really big thing, and I don't, I don't even know if I got a credit, but um, they gave me some money. And actually, uh, um, Boots was like definitely a friend of friends, somebody I saw around. And actually, uh, you know, one of my favorite memories of Boots was actually seeing him in the streets on the way to the 
moving moving day, people tried to occupy a building on January 28, 2012. And I think we have a I think we actually have a sound bite of that. Yeah, I'll pull that up. Occupy Oakland is marching to go occupy a building to have a home base. They're kicking folks out of Oscar Grant Plaza. So we're going to go take a building. Nice. Wow, so he gets in the streets, man. I respect that. Yeah, I mean, and then, you know, a few minutes later, uh, people tried to actually take the Kaiser building. They had uh, brought uh, couches and chairs and whatnot. And the police uh, started firing tear gas and then kind of pushed people away. And then there was uh, on Oak Street, I think uh, people decided that they weren't going to be pushed back by the police and actually used the chairs and the uh, couches and all the stuff as makeshift barricades and Whoa. kept moving toward the police as they fired tear gas. And that was a clip that made the movie. Nice. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was actually interesting because it was, on one hand, a, a, a very big, uh, it didn't accomplish the goal. They didn't occupy the building. And actually, Occupy Oakland after that sort of dissipated. But, I mean, as Andy said, there's, there has been... A, a, Lots of things that happened after that. Um, the when I was living in the Bay after the uh, when when the kind of wave of anti-cop uh, Black Lives Matter stuff happened, I guess, I guess they didn't call it call it an anti-cop movement. I think that's they're what not the, anti-cop; they're just anti-police violence. Yeah, but wait, anyway, the people I people I know are anti-cop. They're pro being alive. Yeah, leave yeah, it to yeah. other people okay. to just be anti-cop. But after the Michael Brown verdict, uh, uh, you know, I was back there, and I mean, living there actually, and then uh, people, you know, blocked the blocked the freeways. Some stores got looted, and actually, several nights of rioting happened. And then I flew actually flew through New York. Well, the second night after Eric Garner, um, oh, the yeah. verdict came out, and then people were blocking uh the west side highway brooklyn bridge yeah i remember i, I was there on the west side highway the yeah, so i was there right, right after it but oakland had a had a whole whole wave of stuff that was quite uh quite big and actually and then also moved, spread to san francisco and to berkeley so there was some continuation even though it did dissipate post moving day so brando um you tell these great stories about going from place to place and shooting this great footage. Some of it gets put in blockbuster movies, four seconds or so. Some of it gets picked up by Democracy Now! and other outlets around the world. How did you get into this uh, independent media uh, space? And you know, what is it exactly that you do? So, well, I guess um, there's, there's two stories, which is like the story of Global Uprisings, a project that I do as part of a collective that Marianne Mackelberg, my partner, is involved in. And she is a co-producer and writes, co-writes everything and, you know, makes it make sense and be cohesive and decent. And she's not just your partner in films, is she? No, no. Uh, we have a kid together. We live together. And uh, she's, she's, incre she's an incredible person. Really, really good writer. Really solid comrade, too. And you're raising your child to become someday the intern at Global Uprisings. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, we'll see. What I, like, I mean, he's, he, you know, children are natural kind of anarchists, so I don't think huh? he's going to, I don't know if he's going to do anything I tell him to do. He's <laughs> okay. going to kind of do what he wants to do. He's going to become a libertarian. But anyways. Maybe not. I don't know. But, but The you good know, kind. Well, maybe, 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 maybe a libcom of some type. <laughs> but like, uh, so, but then there's also, I guess, my own story and like, uh, Actually, me and Marianne were both uh, involved in kind of anti-globalization protests in the 90s, 
um, I wasn't just doing independent media. I was involved in uh, anarchist groups. And uh, when I anarchy, I guess I wasn't part of a real solid anarchist group, but I part, was part of collectives and other projects. And part of that, I think, was uh, a group that I was part of was starting, uh, we started the North Carolina Independent Media Center, um, actually in Chapel Hill. And the Independent Media Center was over 150 media, uh, independent media centers worldwide. And in a way, like any media kind of invented Web 2.0. Mm. Um, there wasn't like uh, so much in like the 90s, early 2000s. There weren't like a lot of um, these kind of participatory media structures that exist now and are kind of like, you know, happening everywhere. So the in that, we, we started, uh, I started doing video. Um, and I just kind of trained myself. I, I was, I, I'm, a, I'm a recovering political science major. I dropped mm-hmm. out of school. All you the know, best. Now I, now I just drink. All um, the best ones are dropouts. But, uh, you know, but I, I didn't study film. I just kind of learned it through doing indie media stuff and moved to New York and also started a public access show here. And then, you know, years later, we, you know, I met up with my partner, Marianne, and we, I decided to move to Europe. And then that was at the height of the the economic crisis. And actually, we had this idea in 2010 that there might be a response to the economic crisis. Um, so we wrote a grant to try to get a, gr- a grant to do a, a film series uh, or a film about reactions to the crisis. But people didn't really th- see that there was actually a real reaction to the economic crisis. That's, that's all really fascinating. I want to just um, put a pin in one thing you said about the indie media in the 90s because that's one of the personal experiences I had as an anarchist. I think you and I are the, about the same age. And, um, you know, back in a time when, you know, there wasn't really, there weren't really that many ways to get information about what was going on in the world, especially from a anarchist or left perspective. These indie media websites, you know, you were part of one. Um, I think were really crucial for me as a, a couple kid. couple of them to try to um, you know, understand the world and see these different small-scale or medium-scale struggles happening. And one thing that was really formative for me, too, as a kid was the uh, WTO uprising in 1999, of course, the anti-globalization in uh, Seattle. And what I found so great about indie media is that by reading these sites and a lot of the analysis and a lot of you know, smaller anarchist websites, I could see the sort of groups coming together and organizing and building up to the WTO. So when it popped off, you know, if I hadn't had those resources, I would have been as surprised as the rest of the media and the political class at that point in time. But I was watching in real time as these indie, indie media and other networks came together to sort of create this massive uprising that really shook the world. And just to clarify, we're not talking about indie media in the general sense, right? We're talking about a network of sites called indie media. Yeah, it was I N D Y M E D I A dot org. In some places, they're still active. I mean, they're they're not as active in the United States now. Bay Area indie media is, is still kind of like working out, and but like in like a, like in Athens, actually, you know, people still use indie media in parts of South America. People use it, and it's very political. It's not it's not trying to be like oh you know we're journalists like people people post like uh communiques or post like information actually in 2008 december 2008 uh when uh there was this police killing that happened in athens everybody learned about it through any in, in media and then there were riots that spread throughout the country and it became an insurrection that lasted for three weeks um and that was the role that any media was trying to play it was actually trying to be something that people could use to get information and to push people to the street. It wasn't just trying to reproduce the spectacle. 
Yeah. So on that note, um, there's been a lot of conversations lately about the role of journalists in uh, the crazy world we're living in right now. Um, I think a lot of people, mostly in the center, but some uh, left of center are very concerned that um, right wing media is following its propagandistic program to a T and serves um, more of a propaganda purpose than a news reporting purpose, as if the news could ever actually have a neutral point of view when it's owned by a big corporation. Everybody say it at once. Fake news. Right? <laughs> we hear it all the fucking time. Fake news, folks. Yeah. Fake news. So um, what is the role of independent media now in the international class struggle? And um, what do you see your role as being? Because I know I, I get asked this a lot and I'm never quite sure what the answer is because I am a journalist with a point of view, which is usually how I describe myself. Um, I don't pretend to be neutral, but am I an activist? Not in my role as a journalist, not really. I have too much respect for activists to claim that mantle. I think I, I usually call myself an advocate more likely or just like, I don't know, where, where do you come down in this? Um, what do you think your role is? How do you see yourself? I don't know. You know, we're in an info war. Uh, I have been told. Yeah. No, so you don't want to hear Alex no, Jones' no, no. impression. It's I, actually I've heard cr- it. Actually. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Don't make me call Alex Jones oh, on you. God, don't inter- don't, don't mansplain to me. It will be all right. Oh, man. I either lie in bed uh, crying and shaking or jerking off. I won't tell the audience. <laughs> I think that what, so what we were trying to do was a kind of a, a, what I guess would be called a militant research project. We were trying to go out, we were trying to analyze, uh, we were trying to interview people who were actually organizing on the ground to provide a little more context uh, than you're gonna get if you're just like watching a streaming video or something like that. Um, and we're also trying to interview political theorists, um, you know, uh, economists, people like that to provide a little bit more context. And we were trying to piece together like all these different movements so that people could see the way that these movements were related. That's what we were doing with Global Uprisings. Hell yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking when uh, someone on Majority Report was talking about this stuff the other day on how the right, uh, right-wing right owned media is so, like, ideologically unified in its program. Like, why couldn't we have a left version of that? Maybe the response isn't to say, oh, how dare you uh, pollute the uh, neutral character of the news. Right. But, like... We're defending you- the fucking gray lady when we should be supporting people out there fucking telling our story, right? Yeah. Oh, the New York Times, they're running out of money. Oh, they're getting attacked. They're not letting CNN reporters into the fucking White House. Fuck them. Yeah. Fuck them. And Go, I mean, let's make our own shit. They do some good journalism. Sure. I think they yeah. do serve a purpose. There but are things that we yeah. could not replace, probably. But, yeah. I like, don't think it's a controversial opinion at this point in time that they are the paper of the ruling class. So Was that ever a, a question? I mean, people like to get mad about them when they do things that are very uh, ruling classy. Like troll people in the style <laughs> section. <laughs> or like, like, I mean, we did a whole episode worth of media crit kind of taking apart the idea that this is uh, in any way a neutral uh, body for disseminating info. So let's not even try to be neutral. So, Brando, the point is that you're not trying to be neutral. You're trying to tell a story that, uh, you know, is not being told 
but from a perspective that looks at on the ground movements, what they believe in a sort of anti-systemic, anti-capitalist uh, sense. Yeah. And I mean, the, the thing is, too, like the news cycle, the way it works, if you're a freelancer like like Jamie is, you have to pitch and you have to try to fall into that cycle. And there's a lot of things that the news isn't paying attention to. And that's the yeah. point of just trying to do yeah. things on your own, get it out and have like a, some, a yeah. format like this. You can get it out. I mean, Hell yeah. Do you think I like writing about electoral politics as much as I do? And dude, Fuck no. Pitching is so brutal, brutal that I have yeah. PTSD just from living with Jamie. And <laughs> seeing I've had to pitch. do it. It sucks. It's <laughs> terrible. horrible. Yeah. Is this appeal to a millennial? It's like, okay. Uh, I mean, I've been, I've been having a lot of feelings lately about how I'm not writing as much as I used to because that is, at the end of the day, the thing I am the best at. Words and in written form are going bye-bye. You have the yeah. antifada now and well, majority well, sir, Well, I was going to say, like, the silver lining to that is that I never have to pitch another fucking editor uh, again if I don't want to. Oh, uh, it's such a pleasure working with editors. They always get back to you so quickly. And then, <laughs> and then you get paid right away. It's great. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, uh, what could possibly go wrong? I've got three clips from some of the Global Uprising short films. Should we start with an, uh, an austerity film from Barcelona? Sounds great. Sounds good. All right. Here it is. This is called They Do Not Represent Us, Barcelona, the May 12th to May 15th, 2012. Students marched from Plaza Catalunya to the headquarters of the Popular Party, Spain's right-wing party that took power last November. They staged a mock funeral and mourned the death of their public education system. The quality of the public university is going down. What we are seeing is that public education is is a right, and they are, what they are trying to do is to put the rights into the market. The, the money you've got to pay to study uh, is increasing by 60%. The day of actions culminated with an encampment outside the Caixa Bank's headquarters in Barcelona. Hundreds of people set up camp to draw attention to the bank's role in creating and perpetuating the financial and housing crisis in Spain. In the coming months, these networks of solidarity will likely prove to be an essential source of strength as they confront the next wave of the crisis. It's not just happening in Spain, it's not just happening in London, it's not just happening in France or United States or Latin America, but it's happening everywhere. The only way is to have a lot of mobilization on the street and from a wide spectrum of, uh, of different people. Some inspiring stuff there. That was uh, an interesting rally, it seemed like. Everybody should watch that because there's one part where there's these three teenagers marching together and one has... Uh, the Who t-shirt, the other has a Nirvana t-shirt, and the third has a Red Hot Chili Peppers t-shirt. Nice. They're right next to each other. Culture That's, is politics. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was, that was, yeah, that was okay. That was okay? It was just it was, okay? Yeah, it was okay. All right. Five out of ten? Uh, that one's like a four, actually. Oh, oh, wow. So, let's get real now. Yeah, really let's real. Let's go to Turkey. All right, so this is Taksim Commune, Gezi Park, and the Uprising in Turkey from uh, May 2013. Against the authoritarian policies of Prime Minister Erdogan. And this was a protest against the uh, demolishing of the park, but it suddenly, immediately uh, changed its face, and it became a protest against uh, the state terrorism and police brutality. The, the protest didn't become only something bigger, but it became uh, uh, something different. It has become a medium of the uh, of the expression of the accumulated anger over years. Uh, people feel it. Feel they 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 feel the, this 
you know, overall regression in the, uh, in the democratic rights and freedoms. As far as we know, through the police reports, in 67 cities in 81, uh, 253 protests happened. People say enough, you know, even the old, old lady in the neighborhood, you know, they, who never were in the, any kind of protest, but they, they, because of this violence, they become uh, protesters. Maybe before in their life, they didn't see the police as the enemy. Uh, but now, uh, with the uh, guns, uh, gas canister ca uh, guns they have and so on, the police looks like the enemy. When local football fans heard that the protesters were being attacked by the police, they came out in large numbers to defend the park. They're singing, take off your helmet, drop your baton. Uh, and, and then come and fight like a man. It was kind of macho, but I mean, they're mm -hmm. soccer hooligans. I mean, they're not. Hmm. I mean, when, when the, real, real quick, one of the interesting things about Gezi Park was nonviolent people occupied the park. Their, their tents were burned. Then soccer hooligans came in and fought the cops. Originally, fans came out because the, the, the park was near that. And then Galatasaray and Fenerbahce fans came out. And they hated each other. They hated each other, mm. like seriously. But they came so out. That's Yankee shit. Yeah, it would be. It would be actually even like more Yankees, extreme. Because, because yeah. like Nets and Yankees fans don't regularly get in fist fights in ah, the street. True. So they Just came out actually bars. to, and that that actually changed the character of the rebellion. That's fascinating. Wow, I've often wondered if there's a way to channel like the intense amount of energy and emotion people put into sports into something that's like actually productive for the world the turks have figured it out and the ultras uh, across europe right also uh, also in egypt uh, panathinaikos fans that's a, that's a later that's mm. another uh, that's a whole another show maybe sports are not counter-revolutionary after all you lied to me class struggle board game <laughs> so Damn. let's talk a little bit more about uh turkey a little bit later we'll show one last we'll play one last clip um, this is from your most recent work, right? The the 2018 Antifa documentary, simply called Antifa, from Deep Dish TV. Clever name. Um, so I'll play a couple clips from this. A black genocide. Come on, man. I mean, it shouldn't even be a question. This is Daryl I mean, Jenkins talking, talking about to bad Spencer. people. Bad people need to be stopped. Period. And and that's the attitude that we bring to OBP. We can see the origins of anti-fascism with fascism. Look back to the 1920s and 30s to the socialists, anarchists, communists, and other radicals who stood up to Mussolini's black shirts, Hitler's brown shirts, who traveled from around the world to participate in the international brigades of the Spanish Civil War. Really, we can see kind of two main threads in the creation of modern militant anti-fascism in Europe. The one thread, is, we can turn to Great Britain. After World War II, as opposed to continental governments, the British government allowed fascists to organize publicly because they had broader, quote-unquote, civil liberties. The government refused to ban the Oswald Mosley meeting, so it was 99% certain there'd be a disturbance, if not a riot. Mosley and his followers claim the right of free speech. So that's Mark Bray uh, <laughs> talking about the history of Antifa. He's the author of the Antifascist Handbook. I'll play another clip from a little bit later in the documentary of uh, Cornell West talking about Charlottesville. Another disturbance. Anarchists and the anti-fascists who approached over 300 350 anti-fascists, we just had 20, and we singing this little light of mine. You, see, you know what I mean? So that the, the, Antifa the, the, meaning anti-fascist. The anti-fascist, and, and the crucial the anarchists, because they saved our lives, actually. We would have been completely uh, crushed, and, and I'll never forget that. One thing that struck me watching your Antifa documentary, especially the footage from Charlottesville, 
was just how violent it was because I did not get that sense from any of the news reports coming out about it, including the frickin' Vice documentary where they gave most of the stage to these white supremacists to spout their views. And, like, I think that was a little bit controversial on the left for a variety of reasons. Like, on the one hand, it's like, yeah, people should know what these guys think and how horrible their ideology is. But, like, we know that Nazis believe in horrible shit. And I'm not sure how much it's helping to just, like, let them talk over and over again when we could be watching, getting, getting information that we didn't have before about what this, how this ideology actually manifests in the world. And um, also, God, okay, I lost my train of thought. Hold That's on. That's cool. And also, like that New York Times story, I'm thinking about that too, the one that probably did not need to be published where they just followed around this Nazi for a few days and they're like, yeah, he's like pretty normal actually. He's just like you. Here are some details about his life and it reveals essentially nothing. He goes to Home Depot. Uh, he likes to you know, work on his car on the weekends. He believes in race, hate and genocide. Yeah, a normal guy, just like the rest of us. Yeah, I mean, pedophiles shop. I yeah. mean, <laughs> everybody eats food. Everybody takes a shit. Hey, but let's communists. think about like a like a you know the like political vision these people have, and that one group believes in genocide, like actually believes in uh, you know exterminating races, or you know like the softer version of that is creating ethno states, right? Which would involve massive violence on yeah. either a yeah. street scale or a state. The scale. other group, and then like the softer version believes in defending Western civilization, which means deportations, removing children from their parents, and creating a space for these people that believe in genocide. Are, are you saying that instead of blaming anti-fascist anti protesters for the violence, that there is actually something inherent to this fascist right-wing ideology that is violent in and of itself, and there's no platform available for these people to be spouting their genocidal bullshit? Anti-fascists who advocate a militant stance have a lot in their favor. History. <laughs> uh, if you actually are able to stop people from doing speeches, ridicule them through, uh, by exposing who they are, doxing them, which, I mean, unfortunately, that works, in, that works both ways. Um, I know that some people have been a victim of that in this room. Um, you can actually halt their ability to organize. You can make them dysfunctional. Uh, you can make them not become a major political movement, which I think, once again, uh, if you look at history, seems to be a great idea. I mean, where do you come down on interviewing Nazis? Like, something about that feels very liberal to me, right? Like, I think we've seen a lot throughout history uh, the, the way that fascists take advantage of liberal values that they do not even agree with within liberal society in order to take power. Like, where do you come down on that? Would you ever talk to a Nazi or interview <laughs> a Nazi? I mean, I'm sure you've talked to them. I'm sure you've exchanged words. I don't think that there's any reason to give them a space to espout their hatred or views. It's not, it's not my role. I mean, it's, it's not what I'm interested in. Um, I'm interested in ways to defeat them. 
Um, I don't think it gives my argument. I mean, I mean, you know, when we made the doc, we included a couple of explosive statements uh, from some key figures just to show that um, that even people on say the the so-called alt light actually have very racist. Uh, fashy ideas even if they don't if they're oh, not surprised don't say yeah. i thought they were just western chauvinists who are really into plato and shit but i don't think that there's any reason to go into their homes and show like what type of person they are that they like you know soap and you know with yeah, whatever you know even yeah. communists use iphones you know it seems as they it, always tell us whenever they see us at protests it seems a little irrelevant to me and it just made me think of <laughs> I mean, not to not to rekindle a flame war here that never needed to happen in the first place, but it kind of made me think of the line in my article that I wrote in Rolling Stone recently that Anna Kasparian got very angry about because I kind of made fun of her for claiming for talking about Grover Norquist as a liberal or a quote unquote social liberal or whatever, because he goes to Burning Man when he's like literally crusading for austerity and state violence and capitalist violence like it seems a little beside the point to me there's i mean there's no point in actually going into details on on right-wingers i mean i, I and, and you're just prov providing them with a space i mean over and over again people think they're going to expose something i mean they're not going to like uh, these people live for they 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 crave the space they use it as recruiting ground when you're documenting these mass mobilizations, um, do you feel like you are a part of them? Are you just observing them or are you somewhere in between? I mean, it's a difficult question. I mean, you're physically part of them. I was there all these places and all the eight or nine countries that we were filming. Um, I think that, you know, I mean, there's some people that I think that uh, film these things and they, they, they see themselves as some integral part of some revolutionary movement. And I don't think that filming something alone makes you a revolutionary or even pro-revolutionary. I think you have to be active on multiple levels. You have to do like uh, what, what in soccer, I think it's called total football. <laughs> total football means... Football total means being able to, you know, you know, I document things, but when we film, we did the Antifa film and we released it, we did fundraisers for people that were arrested on J20 with That's the release up. date. That's what's up. Um, you, and you also have to, like, I think if you want to see yourselves as part of the movement, you also have to realize that um, when you're, especially when you're filming, like you're collecting, you're collecting evidence. Right. You have to be very responsible with how you use that. You have to make sure you're, when as much as possible protect people's identity, not help the state, because then you're basically, I mean, you're basically a spy. Yeah. And also protect yourself, too, because some of that footage that I saw from Charlottesville, which, you know, as we know, somebody lost their life at on top of all the other violence. So on top of Jamie's question, you know, do you feel part of it? Um, is there also something about having that camera in your hand when you're filming that kind of gives you a bit of uh, not anonymity, but protection against maybe the reactionary forces or even the state, the police? Uh, sometimes, but uh, I've been arrested multiple times filming. Um, I've won. Actually, Global Uprising started uh, because I got a, a loss. I won a lawsuit when I was filming in 2002 at an anti-globalization protest. Um, and I was arrested and hogtied for 26 hours. Jesus. Uh, I was beaten by police um, in Turkey um, filming the Gezi Park film and was sprayed with uh, pe pepper spray from a water cannon. God damn. Uh, 
Uh, I was nearly arrested by anti-terror military in Eastern Turkey. Um, it certainly doesn't protect you. And I mean, even at times I've gotten, I've gotten hit by friendly fire. I had a camera smacked down my hand at a riot in Greece. And actually in that case, I don't blame people because once again, like people are trying to protect themselves. Sure. What I'm filming can be used as evidence against them. Um, they don't know who I am. Um, I'm not like somebody that's going to condemn somebody and like yell up, throw my hands up in my air like Tim Pool and be like, free speech. No, you know, mm -hmm. I understand it. You have to actually uh, protect people. And, uh, but at the same time, I think that there is a role in, um, in filming and media, you know, like if you actually can provide some context. And like I said, that's why I said, we call it what we're doing militant research. We're not trying to do just simple journalism. You know, go to the Nazi's house, say like, yeah, he likes cupcakes, and like, and then this guy, he's also like a family man, you know, libcom, you know, radical or whatever. So, as a female chaos dragon, I am very in touch with my emotions, uh, not just dealing in facts all the time here at the Antifada. How does it feel subjectively to be in the middle of these uh, massive demonstrations? Subjectively? Yeah, uh, like in your in your heart. I think that there's two things going on. One thing is that it's, it's definitely, there is the addiction to the adrenaline of being and riots and protests and stuff like that. But I'm not, I'm not so macho to be like, I really love it. I get it. Yeah, I love it. I need it. Like actually it's also terrifying. Um, if you're in a place where people are actually getting hurt and killed, um, and that you might actually, uh, it's traumatizing and, uh, and you have to deal with that. And, and actually, if you're in a situation like that and you don't like feel some sympathy for people that are getting killed and hurt, then actually you have a serious problem. <laughs> you're not yeah. like a, and it's you're a garbage person. Yeah. And, and, not like or, a person who tastes like garbage, but a person who is made of garbage. <laughs> and go. or it's going to come back to bite you in the ass later in the form of PTSD and whatnot. Like I have a friend who's a female uh, war reporter and she reports from conflict zones all over the world. And she says... Yeah, it is really intense. And I do feel a lot of emotions at, when I watch this stuff because I'm a fucking human. And the people who are more likely to get really fucked up from it later are most of the time men who just don't process their emotions. So, Brando, you've been all over the world. You've uh, filmed all sorts of different global uprisings and uh, you left the United States of America. A couple things have happened in the 10 years or so <laughs> since you became an expat. Uh, we now have this guy. His name's Trump. We don't talk Trump much on this show, but we'll actually mention him uh, today. Um, what do uh, you know, the Dutch people or just Europeans in general or Turks or whoever it is that you're talking to, what do people think of Trump's USA? What's the view from the outside right now with all this madness going on? There's no consensus um, whatsoever about Trump. Um, you know, the, the far right is, is using him as a model. I mean, we'll go into that later, Bannon's the movement and all this uh, horse shit. But the... I think the vast majority of people in the Netherlands, it was one reason that Gert Wilders didn't get elected. Um, people saw Trump and they, they're like, okay, we'll just, st we'll just stick with the boring, like, uh, center right, hmm. which is also terrible and also racist. You uh, know, when they were trying to get people to vote for fucking Emmanuel Macron in France, they ran ads that were just the pundits talking about how Hillary was going to win <laughs> and then the results on election night. Uh, and I think it was maybe the best argument, maybe the only argument in favor <laughs> of voting for that uh, neoliberal shithead. Who you still want to fuck. 
Or don't you anymore? I'm not saying shit. <laughs> uh, I, for, I forgot where it came down on fuck, Mary kill with Macron. Uh, we might have moved on. Um, I'm over him. Uh, maybe he's over you. I want to hate fuck my BB uh, Justin Trudeau now. Oh, wow. I thought you were going to say Netanyahu. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, no, no. That was episode uh, number two. <laughs> we needn't revisit that. You have Make a lot of affairs on the show. <laughs> Netanyahu's a step too far. <laughs> um, so um, really, you know, I, I think that uh, Trump we can see as sort of this global trend, this global phenomenon. Um, Trump and Trumpism isn't the end of the story. I think uh, you see Erdogan, who we mentioned in Turkey. Uh, you certainly see Javik in Hungary. You see Alternative for Deutschland in Germany. You see UKIP and the English Defense League and the Brexit vote. You see the National Front. You have all these examples right now of a real far-right insurgency arising. Some of it's politically powerful in the electoral sphere, but a lot of it is actually powerful on the streets and far more radical than even what people like uh, Marine Le Pen are talking about at this point. So we want to kind of interrogate this whole uh, rise of uh, this global right populism, but also try to kind of understand what, a, what an adequate response would be for us uh, here on the radical anti-fatal left. So I think there's a few reasons that these figures have appeared. Uh, one, I think, uh, in Europe especially, is the economic crisis of 2008. And here in the U.S., I think it's seen as more in past tense. But if you, you know, it, when, when, when the U.K. was going to leave, well, I mean, they had Brexit. People are fearing about the economy in Europe. That's still a constant, you know, fear that people have is the economy. Uh, the second thing, I think, is what I, what I would call is sort of a, a legitimation crisis has happened. And I really think this has been happening, built up over the last 40 years. People are very distrustful of politicians. Um, and so a lot of these new populist uh, right-wing figures are kind of anti-politician politicians. Mm, right. um, and then they're blaming um, the destruction of European culture on immigrants. And then what they see is this kind of elite, uh, cultural elite that, you know, uh, you know, ignores the problems of, you know, everyday people, which they see as caused by immigrants right um and they they also see this kind of elite as in sort of this conspiracy in europe which is the eu so there's a lot of uh euroscepticism um and a lot of uh real anger at the schengen agreement which allows people immigrants to and people in general to to travel back and forth across borders legally without having to uh would you know like for instance uh, if you just if you have uh uh, if you're if you're a resident or a uh, citizen of one European country, you can go to and live in any European country. Um, and you ha you don't when you pass across from say Belgium to the Netherlands, you don't go through uh, passport control like under the Schengen Agreement. There's a lot of anger at that. Yeah, and I think you see, especially with a figure like Steve Bannon, you know, who seems like kind of a joke, but is in Europe a lot these days, hanging out with the likes of like Nigel Farage and all these right-wing figures, that there's a bizarre sort of like international nationalism out there, right? A sort of international movement against internationalism. Well, it just came out this week that Bannon has some secret meeting with Boris Johnson, which just kind of sealed this weird commonality that a lot of these right populists have where they they all have 
big, ridiculous blonde hair. <laughs> I mean, so obviously Trump, Boris Johnson has like probably the worst hair of all oh, of them. Oh, God. And then Gert Wilders kind of has like evangelical hairspray hair. <laughs> Fucking Gert Wilders. And Beppe Grillo, I guess he's, it's not really blonde hair, but he also has a sort of like permanent clown wig. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if this is like some sort of alien parasite or. or um, what do you think, Brando? Are they alien parasites or what, what, what's your question again? Are they alien parasites? Did you did he fucking stutter? I, I don't think so. Um, they're definitely products of, of of the countries that you know they come from. Um, I mean, Wilders is an interesting case because he actually is part Indonesian, like way off. You know, oh, really? He actually, yeah. Oh, I mean, what? like he has Indonesian. Thanks, blood. colonialism. Wow, yeah. <laughs> Wilders. I gotta say, I saw him speak. At the Milo party at the RNC. Uh, and you saw him in the flesh. it was the most horrifically racist shit I've ever heard a person say in public or private. It was horrible. Dude, you know who I realized Geert Wilders is? Is he's the fucking remember in Velvet Goldmine where the David Bowie character does way too much coke and then it turns out like no spoilers big spoiler that he's like a fucking televangelist dude look at that fucking movie and tell me that gear Wilders is not that fucking televangelist with the hair yeah you can talk a little bit about Wilders for a second like i think actually he's a loser um <laughs> yeah, i mean he's a loser i, I mean after, he's a loser. i mean i think like you know in the netherlands after he lost the election even though people thought he was gonna win i think he lost because of the trump uh, victory and people are terrified of it. I also think, I also think like I don't think Macron's like is actually like the most charismatic guy. I think he also he came to power because of Trump. Um, yeah. But I think uh, centrist forces are kind of weaponizing Trump. Yeah, uh, I think actually, Absolutely. actually, That's you know, in the Nether- Netherlands, the big the big fear is this this new group, which is the Forum for Democracy, and it's this guy named Thierry Balde. Uh, oh no! So, Baudet, it's like uh, bidet, you know, something you uh, wash your asshole with. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, he, you know, he's interesting because, like Wilders, in some ways, he had some very, he 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 played into this sort of uh, ethnic nationalism, like Dutch culture is being destroyed by Muslims, but he was anti-green energy. He was anti all this. The 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 new forum for democracy. First off, they're pro-direct democracy, which also this group. Uh, the People's Party and also UKIP, uh, which they, they're both of these people are people are going to be part of the movement, which is Steve Bannon's thing. And like Steve Bannon's also letter, the Steve movement? Bannon's like the biggest loser of them all, right? <laughs> he got kicked out of the Trump administration. Mm-hmm. He's been called a conservative on the all <laughs> fired right things. And he's he also like red face. And he gets fired greasy. from Breitbart because yeah. he like runs his mouth in this book. You know, he's a big loser. It's a big losers club. Yeah. I think ultimately they will caucus. they will lose, but they need to be taken into account. But anyway, back to this one group and what what's interesting about them is they're this group is sort of it's kind of like you know how the Proud Boys are saying they're they're for we're for Western civilization, mm-hmm. but we're you know we're not racist. Mm-hmm. This takes it a step further. It says we're for women's rights, we're for gay mm. rights against Islam, mm. we're we're for green energy and everything. So they, these these right wing groups they keep trying to kind of play into the trends and trying to re you know configure themselves but at the same time they're they're they have some fashy things going on like uh the forum for democracy the the, the guy theory Balday or bidet whatever the mm. fuck his name is <laughs> he you know he um he's like against modern art 
Ooh, degenerate Jewish art. Yeah, that's he's a blast from yeah, the past. He's against, wow. he's a, yeah, he's against Oof. modern Everything art. He's, all, he's all into 19th century stuff. So very French who would agree very with fashion. him on oh, that. So, so it's like on Twitter with all the avatars with like the Roman yeah, yeah. classical but, shit. But so he's, you know, like all these groups, they have these things where they try to do uh, either outright racist stuff or if they're clever, they do more dog whistle politics. But if you start to look at everything and you start to connect the dots, they're. They're terrifying and fascistic. Talking about fucking losers, um, the whole Brexit debacle right now, and we're recording in late July 2018, is a real fucking clusterfuck. Um, I don't know how the Tories thought they were going to pull this fucking thing off, uh, negotiating with such a weak hand with the EU, but Boris Johnson recently uh, quit the May Tory um, part, uh, administrative position um, in basically defiance against her weak stand on Brexit. Um, I actually saw Boris Johnson, that shock of alien hair in the flesh. Do you guys want to hear a short little fun story? By all means. So I was actually coming from Jamie's mother's house. So I was coming from the south. No doxing your mom. Mm -hmm. And I was on Amtrak. And uh, I couldn't get on this one car, right? I don't know. I didn't know why the doors were shut. And there seemed to be a lot more like cops with machine guns on the train than there normally are on Amtrak. But this is like a post 9-11 world. So you never know. So like I just I'm hanging out and, you know, reading on the train and finally we get to Penn Station. And as I get off the train, they're like stopping us from leaving all these guys with guns. I'm like, what the fuck is happening? Like, is there an incident? What the hell? And I look and I see like a fucking beacon, like the Holy Grail. I see this shock of tawny, disgusting, stringy hair, and it's Boris fucking Johnson getting out of the car in front of me. Now, I immediately recognize that hair from behind. This dude's like 15 feet away from me. Um, but I'm trying not to, I'm such a fanboy. I'm trying not to like, <laughs> I'm trying to play cool, you know? I'm not gonna like do like I did with Bowie. Um, but as I go and I go up the escalator, um, I was actually next to like his aides, uh, who are these, you know, Tory guys uh, working for Boris Johnson, probably the scum of the fucking earth. Like you have to imagine I'm riding up the escalator with this one guy and he looks like like imagine a pod save America wonk, but like a complete like inbred weak chin like toff. I think the British call it right. <laughs> like, so I asked this uh, like Eden school pedo guy. I was like, listen, uh, you know, is that Boris Johnson over there? Like, is that the man? He's like. He looks down his nose, he's like, Why, yes, that is MP Johnson, foreign <laughs> secretary to the PM, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> it's like such a posh motherfucker, right? And, um, like, the weird thing is, I'm dressed in street clothes, and I ask him, Is that Boris Johnson? You would think if I knew, like, what Boris Johnson looked like, like, I would know who the fuck he was. So, like, basically, I never got to talk to Boris Johnson, but in real life, he's just, like, the most repulsive, opportunistic, bourgeois fucking swine. Like, I could just feel, like, in Penn Station, him leaving a trail of, like, xenophobic slime behind him, <laughs> uh, like a fucking shock-haired snail. And you couldn't even kill this motherfucker with salt because his soul is so utterly fucking desiccated. Oh, he's built like, up a very the, high resistance to salt. The, Don't you yeah, worry. God, that, he's got a high ass tolerance. I imagine he eats uh, about what Trump eats. If it is, if it is an alien parasite, I may have caught it. So if you see my hair go uh, all no. boom like that, and I start talking about Western chauvinism, just look. You're trying out. to give me nightmares, babe. Now I'm afraid I'm gonna wake up next to fucking Boris Johnson. Well, how do you think I feel? I think every morning I'm gonna wake up next to Alex Jones. So mm, welcome to my fucking fair world. Fair turnabout. Right. I mean, it's possible these people are. 
have willed themselves to be so repulsive because uh, fashion is a fey and cosmopolitan uh, decadence. That's, you know? a, that's a very good point, yeah. So, yeah, we talked about um, the, the alien hypothesis, the, uh, the fashion <laughs> Most plausible so far. <laughs> uh, but, but what do you think, Brando? Is there, is there some structural force giving rise to this, this xenophobia, chauvinism, and erosion of bourgeois norms? Yeah, did people just magically get more racist in the past few years, or uh, what's going on there? I mean, I go back to the, the original you know, theory that I have, which is that the two main causes are the economic crisis, global economic crisis of 2008, which the U.S. Uh, has recovered through, but only through debt, uh, to the creation of debt, and basically the, which, which is probably going to be the next crisis, along with some other weird stuff, tech, tech field bubbles and the, the, the cryptocurrency speculation, whatever you want to. Hey, don't talk that down. I have half of my savings in fucking Bitcoin, all right? Uh, Europe, you know, has uh, also had sort of... Uh, you know, limited recovery is basically in pure ec economic stagnation. There's still high unemployment levels in a lot of places. Um, that coupled with the fact that there has been a migration wave um, from the Middle East and from North Africa, um, and that combined with the fact that, you know, there is like a, a sort of legitimation crisis. People don't um, really trust the system so much anymore. These people have taken advantage of it. They've they've tried to bring blame immigrants on the problems um, of Europe. They've tried to, they've tried to push this kind of uh, economic nationalism, um, saying you know, you know, if we you know if we didn't have immigrants, we'd have more money for us. They've did this cultural uh, sort of nationalism where they're saying you know we have to protect uh, Dutch. Dutch culture or say like the, the Flemish Nationalist Party in, in, uh, in Flanders, which is, you know, part of, part of the Netherlands, 60% of people, act, I'm sorry, 60% of people in Belgium um, actually speak Flemish, which is uh, basically a dialect of Dutch. The other 40% speak uh, French. I think I heard a bunch of really kind of stupid comments during the World Cup about how Belgium's basically part of France, but actually 60% of people actually speak Dutch. Yeah. But the Flemish National Party, they're doing the same thing. They're saying, like, we have to protect our identity. All these countries are saying that, and that they've been able to get enough people to uh, support them. But they're still pretty marginal, you know? Like, I mean, even Thierry Baudet, I mean, he's, he's, they're getting more and more votes, which they should be taking into account. Uh, but they're they're pretty marginal. The the case of UKIP and of course the UK that was like a bigger example. But I think like the as has been mentioned before, like like the the realities of Brexit are kind of falling apart, um, which is also in a weird way disturbing because like on one hand you don't want like far right people in power, but at the same time you don't want to return to uh, the center right austerity politics that are happening. And I think this brings up a bigger thing of why these people exist. And that's because the radical left has not been able to produce anything um, as, an, as a real alternative. Um, you, had the, you had these massive movements in, that happened within Greece, within Spain, within France, uh, all throughout Europe, but they weren't able to kind of actually depose the people in power and push about a better, uh, better forms of life that people wanted um, and and could actually feed people and give them all the basic things that they need. These people promise that they're not. Of course, they're not going to be able to do it. But 
this, these are the reasons I think these people are popping up. Well, on the topic of economic anxiety, um, I will admit to knowing much more about the U.S. politics than I do about Europe. Um, and I understand that a lot of right populists in Europe pair this uh, nationalism, racism, etc., with some form of social democracy, even if it's only for certain people. Whereas in America, uh, it really just seems like pure culture wars because the class part is a one-sided class war on the workers. Um, it's true. And, and in terms of who, like, I know this doesn't only manifest itself in the electoral sphere, but in terms of who voted for Donald Trump, most of the people who voted for Donald Trump are the same people who always vote for Republicans. Right. And the role played by poor white people in this election has been greatly exaggerated by the media. I feel like poor whites get blamed for a lot of shit that they didn't necessarily do. When the reality is, yeah, there was a small slice of working class swing voters, not entirely white, but mostly white, who um, went for Obama one year and then Trump the next. But um, most poor white people didn't vote for Trump because most poor whites and most poor people in general don't vote at all. So like, where does this track with that? This is something that I've been circling around and around trying to explain and get my head around myself. In answer to that, babe, I would kind of branch off of what Brando said and, and bring even some more history into it. Cause he, I think very rightly pointed to the uh, crisis of 2000 to, uh, 2007, 2008 as really crucial to understanding the anxieties that bring these things out. Um, that of course also happened in the United States, right? We cannot, uh, uh, we cannot downplay the effects that that had, but um, I'd like to go all the way back even to the 1970s and I'll make this real fast. Um, basically, the United States, after the, the Second World War, helped to create a global order, a global capitalist order. You had the ruling classes of the European powers. This was before the war ended, uh, creating the Bretton Woods system, right, which was basically the international framework under which monetary uh, and institutional financial policy across the entire world would operate with the United States as the global capitalist hegemon. Now... This is during the Second World War and after the Great Depression. The ruling class at that point in time, internationally, had enough vision that they sat down and had a conference, knowing they're going to win that war about a year later or so, to figure out a way forward structurally to keep capitalism going and in a different direction. In the 1970s, okay, you had that fall apart and we entered a new phase of crisis. But again, the international capitalist class figured out a way out of it, right? Which was to get off of the gold standard, go to fiat currency, get rid of Bretton Woods, start uh, a massive uh, foreign development um, across the developing world, uh, and also open up easy credit lines, you know, as wages stagnated uh, and basically break out of the bounds of the nation state. Now, I think the real problem, I think why there's this legitimation uh, crisis that Brando talks about is that our current ruling class, you know, both politically and economically, has absolutely no solution to this long-term uh, crisis we've seen over the last 10 years. It's a crisis of capital accumulation, right, that burst in 2007, 2008, and they refused to allow that capital to be liquidated. They made the banks whole. You, Obama and the, and the Congress, the Republican Congress in the United States made the banks whole, all right? So... 
they basically went back to the status quo. Part of what you're seeing now, right, is this lack of cohesion that the ruling class has had in the past, this lack of a long-term vision, and it's expressing itself in these sort of centrifugal forces that are tearing apart all sorts of institutions, right? Uh, global norms on trade, uh, tariffs, austerity, and just basic trade policy in general. And I think the reason for that is that cohesion is a lot easier, all right, when there's enough profit to go around, right? When there is capital accumulating across the globe, when uh, there's enough to pay people and there's enough for people to make money. But when stagnation comes, all right, it means that both nationally and between capitalist firms, there's less and less surplus and less and less in, uh, productive investment to make profits on and less and less of a basic class unity between the capitalist class. So if the capitalist class has no option to get us out of this, right, uh, without liquidating itself, essentially, there can't be another class bargain like we saw coming out of the New Deal because profits aren't high enough, right? You cannot offer the working class more of profits that are stagnating, all right? But you also can't increase credit anymore like we saw coming out of the 1970s because everyone's loaded with fucking debt, not just personal debt, but corporate debt and government debt. Yeah, and it's finally starting to cave in on itself, right? Right, but they want to prop it up. And lastly, too, there's nowhere else physically for that capital to go. I've said this before, but China now is almost fully capitalized, whatever you want to call it, right? A f there's no frontier anymore for capital, right? Tell so that to Elon Musk. <laughs> he knows his frontier. So there's no international solution, right? Uh, not within the G8 or within the EU or between US and like a Brexit UK. Um, and there are real limits on the ability of what actual individual nation states can do because they're buffeted by unemployment, by the migration crisis, crisis that uh, Brandon talked about, declining social services and everything like that. So basically, like if you're a normal everyday working person, you've seen essentially a lost decade. All right. If you're old enough, you've actually seen with stagnating wages in the United States and parts of Europe, a lost four decades all right, of your life. And the leaders on TV and the politicians and everybody, they don't have any fucking solution except for this kind of like US Trumpian kamikaze capitalism that's just like based on like looting whatever's left through austerity, union busting, and getting rid of all the remaining gains of the 20th century, right? So like you could basically, th there's no solutions to these things. We can't return to the status quo. All they can offer these politicians, right, or the political solution is a false unity, this neoliberal unity based on diversity and cosmopolitanism and civility and the national good and shit. But the people see that the leaders have no solution, right? There isn't even a left like there was in the past to offer like a, a counter narrative to that. So if we know and we feel and that we and we realize that we're in a zero sum economy and that br uh, brown or Muslim or Polish people moving in next door in Ohio, Hungary or Manchester might have a chance at taking our job. We can see how these appeals to nationalism and racism and protectionism can seem reasonable because there aren't any other options out there. Right. Uh, so basically the attitude is if we're all going down, if I'm going to lose my shitty ranch house in my ex-urban opiate addicted ghetto, at least I can fuck over these foreigners enough that I can maybe keep my mortgage paid for a few more months. And in people in Europe, people realize the whole structure's fucked up. And what they're doing ultimately, Brando, you talked about all this shit with the EU, is they're confusing the political project of the European Union with the failure of the neoliberal Eurozone. Right. In this process of globalization mm -hmm. and nobody is prepared to confront 
the fundamental structures of capitalism, right? They want the close enemy. They want the easy enemy. They want the migrant. They want the people lower than them on the totem pole to kick around. They want Hungary for the Hungarians. They want fucking England for the English. And they want Americanism and Trumpism in the USA. And that's my fucking spiel. That's, I think there's deep fucking structural issues and the ruling class has no way to get out of them. And that's why you're seeing counter-systemic movements taking on a very dangerous, dangerous cast right now. Oh, I really like that phrase, uh, kamikaze capitalism. How'd you come up with that? I think we came up with that uh, in the car on the way over. Uh, I came up with it in the car on the way over. Jamie but, uh, came uh, up you're with welcome. it. You're welcome. You're welcome. I'm still, you know, I'm still thinking like a writer, you know, and uh, <laughs> plagiarism is very scary to us. There's so no plagiarism I just really want to make sure that uh, everyone gets proper credit for everything that they think and say. But um, I, I think all that makes a whole lot of sense, but it still doesn't really answer my question. Or maybe it answers my question for the small slice of working class people who went for Trump, certainly, who played a role in the election. But even, quote unquote, middle class professional people feel these pressures, too. They're not given an alternative, right? They're the ones in the exurbs with their ranch house, you know, and, you know, even if they're not directly falling into, uh, you know, the poor or the working class, um, they still feel resentful that their identity, that their culture is under attack because it's seen as a threat from the outside, something that they didn't face in the past. And ultimately, the biggest threat to their lives is not something that they're able to recognize. And that threat is global capitalism, uh, climate change, and um, basically the ruling classes uh, disdain for the rest of the human population and their love for profits. So, so that makes a lot of sense. But I still want I'm still trying to reconcile this analysis with uh, all the polls that uh, liberals like Amanda Marcotte like to bring up where they actually asked people who voted for Trump, are you feeling economically anxious? Are you concerned about the economy? Are you concerned about your culture changing to the culture of foreigners? And most people, their stated reasons had less to do with the economy and more to do with all this uh, culture war shit. So, like, I, I'm still trying to reconcile these two things with one another. The way, the way that I reconcile it, uh, and Brando can jump in on this, too, is that what I, the reasons I gave were on a very high abstract level. When you get down to people's subjective feelings, um, that is a very low level of abstraction. Are you accusing people of false consciousness? I would never do such a thing. Brando, would you ever do that? So I, I think that what, what Jamie touched on is definitely true. I mean, I think that there's definitely a lot of xenophobia, racism, and, and a sort of uh, romanticism of, the, of, a, of a U.S. that never was. Um, you know, that there Make was America great again. Or a Europe that never was. Too or a Europe that never was or anything. I think that happens. But I, I, don't, I think that a lot of the economic uh, uneasiness and things like that... Um, I think that also exists, and even if people don't state it, you know, they see they see things as sort of uh, directly, you know, affected by migrants and 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 refugees or whoever, you know, like it's easier for them to blame blame their problems on somebody else. Um, even if people want in like an opinion poll, say, do you, do you feel an economically uneasy or do you, you know, not like Mexicans, you know, it's it's sort of I don't know, you know, but I don't, I don't really know what else to say. I, well, I, if I could just I mean, this respond is about a specific opinion poll in the U.S., so I don't... Yeah, and, and also, too, I, I would add that, like, 
racism, xenophobia, and like ethnic chauvinism, and like some sense of uh, I don't know, fucking the scary other, always exists, right? You know, here and abroad. The question is, is why is it being mobilized and institutionalized right now? Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Yeah, like America. I'm not. I'm not trying to say that these people are correct to hate brown people or Muslims. What I'm trying to, to offer is perhaps a very abstract explanation of how you reconcile what you're talking about with these people's you know, individual opinions on the one hand with the larger sort of structural forces at play that Brando's talking about. Yeah, and I think these feelings aren't created in a vacuum. You know, when you talk about people being afraid of losing their status in society, because, I don't know, another culture is coming in and that's like threatening to them. What does status mean to people? Like it's intimately linked to your status in the capitalist hierarchy, you know, sure. and it's pretty impossible to disaggregate them from one another. And also on that level, you can't disaggregate them from the patriarchal hierarchy or, or the racial hierarchy. That is right? also true. I, actually, I'm really feeling you, Jamie, too. I mean, like it's 100 percent that you know, white supremacy is like a real thing and that people are, are, you know, attracted to these people for that. And like to deny it and just to try to just simply explain it through classism or, or economic uncertainty is inadequate. I, I think agree. that's, I, I think that's really, it's a big problem when people who are Marxists or people on the left try to do it in that terms. And if actually any revolutionary movement wants to have any weight, it has to address it. Um, you know, and, and also, I mean, the other the other part of it, too, is like even though you might have like groups, say, uh, uh, like the Forum for Democracy may try to embrace some sort of women's rights as a way to, you know, increase Islamophobia in the U.S., like sexism is a really big thing. I mean, uh, definitely like the alt right. That's that's that. I mean, that's where they got their foundation from, you know, like online chat forums attacking, right. <laughs> yeah. you know. Like Gamergate and stuff like this. Movement. I mean, oh, yeah. th th there's a there's a lot more than just uh, classism or economic uncertainty. This like feeling this, and I mean, I mean, you're you're 100 right. I mean, I, and forgive me for not bringing that in. Like, and and that's that's why you're here. Yeah, and, and also I would say too that I don't want my like large structural analysis analysis to be misconstrued as ignoring all that other shit. But I think that like um, we have to have some larger historical vision of how things have changed that's greater than one opinion poll you know that spans over the course of 40 or 400 years or whatever the case may be otherwise we're just left with like things are shitty people are worse you oh, know absolutely but we can we can tie these things together because like i said they're different levels of abstraction yeah certainly and i think a lot of the time when you look at one poll like that you're not getting the complete picture but it is very hard like i've tried to do it on the majority report in just a few sentences to give sort of a historical materialist base for a lot of these phenomenon and also explain what class is and that it's not an identity it's a social relation it's hard folks it's not fucking easy. We've, it's not obvious. We've kicked like three or four people off of the show. We should be up to like episode 20 right now, except they use the word classism. So mm. we had to throw them out the fucking window. So, I think I used that word. Oh, shit. God, throw <laughs> uh -oh. this guy out. Not again. Class Scrap is not it. an identity. It's show. a material relation. So what I was going to say on what you were saying earlier, babe, um, is that like, America is a racist country, no. right? It's full of racists. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I work with them all the time. <laughs> right? Like, it's full of racists. Um, and pretty much 
every president that's ever been elected, whether Democrat or Republican, safe to say they had a lot of racists vote for them. Definitely Obama. Not limited to, but including <laughs> Obama. Uh, racist was like the, Colin, uh, new Black Panthers. Racist right? like Colin Kaepernick, exactly, who are just like <laughs> ruining America with yeah. their divisive identity politics. But no, like there is a small slice of voters. And by the way, we're not talking about most of the people who voted for Trump anymore because most of the people who voted for Trump are regular Republicans and they're our class enemies, right? They're voting their class interests. Uh, I'm talking about any working class people who voted for Trump because those are the only people we care about. I mean, no, we don't only care about working class <laughs> people who voted for Trump. That came out all wrong. Uh, but we only care... Ab- Deep Antifada mindset. Yeah, right. <laughs> Galaxy brain. Ah, <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> I'm going to get us in trouble. But like... It's safe to say that a decent number, like everyone who voted for Trump either is actively racist or just doesn't care right. about yeah. racism. They're, they're like, e- they're, they're eager to just set it aside for their material yeah, interests, because which isn't as bad, but it's almost as bad. It's bad, <laughs> right? But like a decent number of those people once voted for Obama. So we have to say, did those people just magically become more racist or were there other factors interacting with the racism and making a, some kind of a heady brew of uh, right wing populist shittiness? Uh, the only thing, the only thing, the only thing I would say is that the white supremacy and the rise of Trump, um, white supremacy is in Europe is definitely a reason for the rise of the, the right wing there too. I mean, you can't you can't uh, divorce it and just simply say that there's this you know uh, legitimation crisis, economic crisis, like the idea of being able to play play into the there's this sort of uh, tradition and everything that that tradition is is a tradition of white supremacy <laughs> yeah, no I mean, why I mean, why uh, the, the, Dutch tra- the Dutch tradition migrants. is is being able to colonize <laughs> right. uh, Indonesia and uh, Suriname all these places it is a rich the, the british the british tradition is <laughs> again can i just point to like the longer term history South right Africa, like everything. where why are there Afri- like you know yeah. west african migrants you know who are now living in france ah oh, what did Maybe the how did the French even end up there? Why do those people speak French? You know, so if your if your perspective is only four or forty years, but not four hundred years, mm-hmm. like you don't see that a lot of this is a blowback to the exploitation, oppression, and domination of colonized people that happened for five hundred years. Yeah. And then on the other hand, I think there's this liberal multiculturalism mm-hmm. that is, it says it's good to have um, many different kinds of people, but as long as they're sort of like culturally segregated and seen as immutable in in terms of who they are culturally so like for example in the united states there's this idea that oh it's very good to have immigrants here as long as they are this immiserated underclass um and that's liberal multiculturalism yeah, they do it all the jobs the better to Americans pick the tomatoes with do. and in europe one big thing is assimilation like they have to subscribe to our ideals like in the netherlands that's a mm-hmm. that's a huge thing like assimilation and you know, like, like, like I, I remember, like, I started learning Dutch and a Spanish friend told me, you, you'll never fit in if you learn Dutch. You have to become Dutch. Because she was a little while in the Netherlands. That's, that's the way it is. You have to get really Damn. boring real I mean, fast. I guess. Uh, Show up to everything on time. I, I guess we have it better in some ways in America, right? Because it's always been kind of a melting pot. Although uh, 
to varying degrees. Everybody has it terrible everywhere. <laughs> All right, fair enough, fair enough. Take away. But um, moving on to something a little more positive, like in terms of how we fight the right uh, and these. Fight the right. The, the rising. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Um, comrades, yeah, unite good, and good fight the right. Hell yeah. Um, Black maybe and I'll white, unite and fight. That was an old CIO thing. Yes, that's, that's what I was grasping for. Um, but like, I got to give Hillary Clinton. A little bit of credit here. Get the fuck out of here. Try not to fall out of your chair. Wow. Uh, when Talk she about post-traumatic stress. Jamie had to read uh, What Happened oh by uh, Hillary Clinton to review it for an article. And I swear our house was like a dark den of, like, of just uh, demonic energy. She started wearing a pantsuit. Yeah. Uh, I haven't she felt got into the, the whole outfit. Hillary Clinton kind of has that Geert Wilder's like uh, blonde kind of oh hair man. thing. Uh, oh. Don't say that about <laughs> Queen Hillary. I'm sorry. You're trying to defend uh, your queen. I have not felt that dark since, uh, oh yeah, Ozzy Fest last weekend. Yeah. I guess it's pretty fucking recent. <laughs> but she, she sort of stumbled upon a little bit of, I, I don't know, shall we say Bernie would have won? Reasoning what? when she talked about her weird basket of deplorables Ooh. and like, you know, basically everyone who votes for Trump or Republicans in general before the Democrats decided they were going to treat Trump like he was a special phenomenon divorced from the rest of the right wing. A Russian phenomenon. <laughs> right. And she said, you know, half of these people are deplorables. They're irredeemable. They're going to be racist and sexist until they die. We just have to wait for them to die, basically. And they deserve their own basket. And Yeah, and half are, you know, maybe could be convinced not to become a comrade, per se, but certainly to vote for a better option given uh, a candidate that speaks to their material needs. Now, Hillary was not that candidate, as we all know. But um, and I don't know, we're we're not very good at math here at the Antifada, so I'm not sure if half is exactly accurate. But I think she perhaps unknowingly hit upon something very true, which is that when you have a real left populist alternative that speaks to people's material needs, uh, at least some of the people who are currently going uh, going right pop. And again, I'm talking about working class people. I'm not talking about class enemies. I don't really give a shit about them. Uh, some of the people are going to come along. And there's no difference. Like, I'm kind of tired of the radical centrists that you see on Donut Twitter who try to pretend that by speaking to broad working class interests, uh, politicians like Bernie Sanders or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are somehow being, like, damaging to women and people of color aoc is the most misogynist racist piece of shit woman of color i've ever seen i know what she always talks about that class shit fucking bernie bro right yeah. no like somebody actually had that take i believe it this this world is fucking irredeemable we should yeah. just leave it but like the point is that you can speak to all of the people who don't vote currently you can give them something to vote for and you know, if half of the deplorables want to come along and decide to vote in their own material interest, too, then that's fucking fine. There's no difference between those two things. So, Brando, uh, you've seen a lot of things happen. Yeah, so I've seen some shit, man. Of that shit, uh, what do you think uh, you know, has some potentials? You know, what are the possibilities out there for a left response to all this uh, right-wing nutbaggery, but also just kind of capitalism and its states in general? 
I think that people need to articulate their vision for the future. They need to think about what's going to happen after the revolution, and they need to think about how we're going to create the revolution. So when we use terms like communism or anarchy or things like that, what does that mean? I think back in the day, there was a lot of articulation of that from various people, and uh, there were limits to that. You know, Kropotkin wrote various books about, you know, factories of tomorrow and, uh, and, and Berkman wrote like the ABCs of anarchism. And there were like all these different things about what were going to happen after revolution. Mm-hmm. If right. you look at the, uh, the Dutch council communists, like Jan Appel and stuff, he wrote about like, what were the fundamental principles of communist production? Um, uh, Panacoic wrote about workers councils. Things Pancake like that. man. Friend yeah. of the show. Mm-hmm. So I think that, I think we need to be able to really think about like, okay, what are we going to do? How are, what are we going to do? And I actually have some proposals, uh, which is basically trying to think about how we're going to decentralize the way food is produced so that we can have food production close to us. We need to have that. If we're going to have a revolutionary movement, we need to be able to feed ourselves. We need to figure out how we're going to be able to decentralize the power grid, how we're going to be able to produce power. We're, of course, going to have to find a way to build a, proper networks and stuff that can replace and get rid of the state. Uh, We're going to have to think about what we're going to do when we abolish wage labor and money. Very important. Um, How are we going to, how are we going to actually, how are we going to think about uh, ways that we can distribute resources and get what we need without having to create a, 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 an exchange value, uh, which allows for the production of a, uh, a surplus value for a, 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 a privileged few. And I think, but, you know, to get there, we're going to think about what are we going to have to do to create a revolution? And there was some great, the, the thing about it is, I don't think that you can just say like, all right, we've had this wave of, of movements that happened international. They failed. There's nothing to learn from them. Throw them aside. There was some great things that happened in the wave of insurrections that happened from 2000. I mean, really, the start of the crisis, if you say, think about, like, what happened in Greece in 2008, up until, I mean, even France. I mean, the stuff's still kind of popping off every once in a while. And I think some things that happened, there were some moments that I found inspiring. And I, I'd like to just take a second to talk about a few of those. Yeah, please. Uh, we need some inspiration so, after all that racism. You know, there, was, um, there were you know, over 30 general strikes in Greece. Um, those had limited effect because about say 20 percent of the population participated in them there were only one day strikes if you could have 20 percent of the population uh, participate in the strike for two weeks it could actually be very uh, debilitating to economy if you did something more like the pan-european strike that happened in 2012 and you had 20 to 50 percent of the population participate in it it would cripple the economy uh, if you had something like that was happening in the 18 days in Egypt, where you had all aspects of society pushing to overthrow a despot, but actually extended that to the military, where you actually have uh, conscripts overthrow the generals, that was the limitation of Egypt. Uh, but it would also have to be international, because let's not forget that the Egyptian military was supported by the United States. So we need an international movement that can uh, employ... Uh, work stoppages, they can actually uh, split up the military, they can actually seize all the things that we have, not just take over uh, abandoned factories or uh, squat houses, but they can actually seize the things that we need, and then we need to transform those into the world that we need. And we need to actually articulate that in a way uh, that people can get behind it. That's uh, 
That sounds pretty fucking good. It uh, sounds good, but it's a lot. You uh, just threw out a whole lot there, and it might be a lot for some of yeah, our listeners yeah, to sorry. get their minds around, <laughs> especially people who might be new That's to some of these ideas. Yeah. Um, so, like, two relatively minor questions for you. <laughs> um, is that, is that who is your dad and what does he do? <laughs> no, it's not what? silly. It's actually no. it's, a, it's a breath of fresh air. To be honest it's, with you, I mean that's why people like us, right? Uh, they might not no, always agree like with you, what we say, <laughs> but uh, you know we're we're sincere. We're we're good-hearted kids. Um, no, uh, a what, little dose of the utopian is really good. I mean, we need it. We do. Let's. I mean, if I didn't have like a utopian streak inside of me, I would probably have given up completely on any kind of politics by Same. now. Well, uh, just like Keithy Bhattacharya said, uh, Marxist's calling card is hope. Oh. Maybe not true of everyone in the room here, but uh, <laughs> well, I mean, just to, respond, just to respond to the <laughs> idea of utopianism, I would have never thought in Istanbul that I would see the police pushed out of an out of a huge neighborhood for 10 days, that people would be exchanging goods without any uh, thought of sort of getting some, you know, there was no bartering going on. People were just giving away things for free, and the police were pushed out of the neighborhood. Oh, and P.S., fun fact. People like to talk about how bartering was what we had before a uh, system of monetary exchange. No. Not, not true. true. No. Not true, folks. Bartering arose along with money. Shout out to D. Graves. And there have the been these revolutionary moments that have happened throughout history, and they've worked for a certain period of time, but people have not been able to protect themselves and expand it. And... You know, people wouldn't have, I mean, there there are these historical shifts. Feudalism shifted to capitalism. It took uh, hundreds of years, yeah, even. I mean, lots of things happen. I think it's part, I think it's inevitable. That's my optimism after. Wow. Yeah. Communism will win. Uh, okay, so like I said, two small questions. What are we going to replace the uh, bourgeois state with? And how will we defeat the armed-to-the-teeth U.S. military? I think, once again, like, what what I brought up was that in the case of places where there were uh, things that went beyond, that I covered, where they went beyond uh, strikes or protests, if you look at Egypt, for instance, where they actually were able to depose a, a despot, the military was able to take control. But in that situation, a lot of the people were actually conscripts. You know, uh, you have to actually get people to revolt against the generals. People have to organize to a level where they actually can organize soldiers against their superior officers. You have to basically get control of the, the, the arms of it. You don't have, you shouldn't think of it as a fight of you're going to go out and toss rocks against a stealth bomber. You have to get, you have to actually reach the people that can actually shut those things down. That's a big project. It's really hard. So it sounds like it's mostly a political project though. Like oh, it's definitely people get really project. hung up on uh, revolution mm -hmm. and like gunfights and uh, violence and mm -hmm. whatnot. But we've seen a few times throughout history where revolutions, at least at the very beginning, weren't that violent at all because people had reached a certain level of class consciousness and it had spread to a certain proportion of the population, which is so hard to picture right now, right? I mean, I would, I, unfortunately, I, I, I have to disagree. I think revolutions are pretty much always violent. Um, even the ones that were nonviolent, there were people died. Um, but I mean, I think I, I agree that it's a political project, and 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 as a revolutionary, you would, you don't want to try to pick up the bloodiest fight possible. You want to try to minimize the amount of that, and that and that that requires, you know, 
quite a bit of organization. And it does, and as a political project, as you said, you have to build a vision that people are interested in. And you also have to create something that people feel like they can win. And I think if you want to talk about what are you going to replace uh, the state with, um, there's examples of that. I mean, um, there, like I, I worked in Eastern Turkey um, a couple of years ago, and there is that idea of democratic federalism, and it it does is very limited. And in the in the case of like Rojava, they're dependent on. Uh, on international trade, they had to, the U.S. military had to come and back them militarily against ISIS. But the idea of creating um, uh, confederations of local communes, collectives, workers' councils, things like that, um, I that's that's one idea of how you're gonna how you're gonna build it, um, and you have to build that on a larger uh, level than just a small part. It has to be an international network. Um, and you have to figure out a way that you can rotate and shift hierarchy enough where someone's not going to become a dominant player within that. Um, and you have to create something that's not overly bureaucratic, um, but that is efficient uh, enough to basically that people get their basic needs and that things are going to happen. I mean, you don't want to have like a, you know, it's not going to be like food, not bombs on a global <laughs> level or God, something. God, I hope not. Something where people are having to eat. Like, Unautomated uh, scarcity. Cardboard and glue sandwiches. and Communism. Um, but anyway, I'm not going to go into trashing everybody. Why does everybody talk shit on food, not bombs? I, I like food, not bombs. Were we all in food, not bombs? Is it fair to say we're all? One, two, three, four, every single one of us. Yeah, we should not talk Okay, cut that part. No, no, no. Leave it in, and we all apologize to our younger selves. How about I cut back and I say, I think it has to be bigger than just a self-help project where we're trying to work with limited resources you know, from taking leftover things and distributing, we have to actually figure out like what, how are we going to produce agriculture? How are we going to make sure that people can eat, people can feel safe, stuff like that? I don't know. It's a big question. I don't. I don't know. I don't know the answer. Listen, it's a, it's a hard question you asked there, Jamie. It, it is. I mean, it you is asked the, the hard question, questions. right? Oh my god! I think that this we actually softballs over here. <laughs> I, I think that we actually came to it. If I could summarize this episode, I think it's it's really short. Okay, here's the takeaways. All right, you heard it here. Racist people aren't really racist. It's just structures. <laughs> Hillary Clinton did absolutely nothing wrong. The left Gosling. much engage in entryism into the NYPD and the army immediately. And abolishing the value form of the bourgeois state will not happen in a day. It might take a couple of weeks. Flips in my O. It ain't enough to buy shit anymore.
sleep in the doorway, piss on the flow. Look in the sky, wait for missiles to show. It's finna blow, cause they got the TV, we got the truth. They own the judges, and we got the proof. We got hella people, they got helicopters, they got the bombs, and we got the, we got the, we got the Exploding. Please, sir, may we have another portion? We're children of the beast that dodge the abortion. Neck plays firm between the floor and the portion. We'll shut your shit down, don't call it extortion. Caution, we're coming for your head. So call the feds and get files to shred. Every textbook read said bring you the bread. But guess what? We got you instead. We got the guillotine. We got the guillotine. 